Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. It's our first podcast of 2023, so here's to a very happy year of stories ahead. And we've three wonderful stories for you on this episode. Cristiano Ronaldo could be the embodied definition of international superstardom. He also happens to be the exact same age as me. More to the point, how is it that I seem to share the same taste in men with a middle-aged Holy Cross priest? Now, he was not a saint. One afternoon, he had mitched off school after lunch and gone down to Anderson Macaulay's department store, where he succeeded in pinching a new Hornby railway carriage. So get ready for regrets and memories featuring Ronaldo and a urinal, an abusive grooming priest, and the return of a long-lost school friend. Okay, let's get started, and this story was told in the black box on November 23rd, when the theme was Small World. It was told by John Moriarty, who'd not been to the 10 by 9 microphone for some years, so we were delighted to have him back. Take it away, John. The humble urinal, or urinal, where I'm from, is a monument to practicality, but not traditionally where you might expect any story in polite society to begin or end. Even if you happened to have used the same urinal as an international superstar, still, it wouldn't be among your standard claims to fame over dinner. Cristiano Ronaldo could be the embodied definition of international superstardom, having transcended the sport of football and become one of the most recognisable and clippable performers of a generation. He also happens to be the exact same age as me. We are both now very late into our mid to late 30s, and while he's spent two decades breaking records for goal scoring and individual accolades, about all I've managed in that time is to break a few stolen pint glasses. The closest we ever came to one another was about a 30-metre distance. He was busy scoring his 20th goal of that season for Manchester United, an audacious backheel into the goal I was sitting behind in Old Trafford's East Stand. It was 2008 and we were both 22 years old. As 70,000 fans chanted his name, the thought occurred that besides our ages, the only thing we had in common was that both of us were technically there for work. Less than a year earlier, I'd emerged from university with a psychology degree and more than a trace of superhero complex. A friend of mine was working in social care in an independent service for adults with intellectual disabilities. He agreed to pass on my name to a residential unit manager who was hiring. Not exactly Spider-Man, I thought, but a start. On my first shift, the manager showed me the house, which was home to eight residents with varying life histories and needs. It was on the edge of a large town, walking distance from pubs, shops, and a cinema. After the brief tour, I was introduced to a man that I'm going to refer to as Thomas. Thomas was also the same age as me, and a much bigger fan of Ronaldo's than I was. He'd been having a long and gradual transition, I was informed, from child to adult services. He needed a key worker, ideally a man. I looked about the room. Me, a complete newbie, still smelling of student halls. You'll be fine, the manager told me. Yeah, I thought, I can handle this. After a while, I got into a bit of a groove, working and doing a master's part-time. I felt dialed in, bringing insights from work to the classroom and vice versa. A one-man virtuous circle. Not quite superhero, though it so happened as a result of the shift pattern that I studied by day and worked by night. I started to look upon being Thomas's key worker as a special assignment. 
One of the reasons I can fluently refer to him as Thomas is because I wrote about his life in a case study report for my course using the same pseudonym. I read long medical files, I met with family members, and I spent lots of time with Thomas watching football, painting his room, getting the lowdown on the karaoke scene in his mother's village. His speech was limited, and he learned to cope by constantly asking two-word questions and letting others talk. But as best we could, we learned to communicate and address ourselves to the question, what did Thomas want from life? Two things stood out. More events, more stories to tell, and more independence. You'll need to do his teeth for him, my manager told me. I thought, does any 22-year-old want another 22-year-old poking around in their mouth? So I tried bringing my own toothbrush to the bathroom and getting Thomas to mirror me. Oh, wow, I heard my manager say, watching from the door. I was publicly praised at team meetings from my proactive approach to Thomas's independence. What's next, I was asked. Meanwhile, back at uni, I read strongly worded criticisms of the overuse of prescription medication among disabled adults. I googled the meds that Thomas was on, a strong antipsychotic with good efficacy but known side effects. I read some case study evidence but couldn't recognize the erratic and often violent behaviors described among prior patients as something Thomas was even capable of, despite his significant bulk, bulk and strength. Thomas was due for a psychiatric review and I was asked for my opinion by his GP. The comedian Tommy Tiernan refers to this period in a man's life, the early 20s, as his heroic ignorance. The man I was being asked about had been introduced to me four months earlier. I had no prior professional experience or psychiatric training. This, surely, was a moment for me to hold my hands up and say that my opinion was of limited value, perhaps defer to my female colleagues who knew Thomas longer than I had. Instead, I stated the conclusion of my case study, namely that Thomas's steps towards greater independence were significant and, and key to his current state of mental well-being. That spring, he was switched onto a milder alternative medication. Meanwhile, I'd been busy earning more brownie points by asking a favor of a friend with an inn at Old Trafford. Thomas would be traveling with me, another resident Man U fan, and one of my female colleagues, Aston Villa versus Man United, sitting ducks for a team with Ronaldo at his peak. Unfortunately, things started to go awry that spring and worsened in the summer. Incidents started to accrue, minor at first, but gradually escalating and grimly familiar to some of my colleagues. I began to hear more detailed accounts of life in the house before my time and before the first antipsychotic prescription. Volleys of invective, staff members going home bruised emotionally and physically. Now these worrying patterns were reappearing. Red incident forms were piling up and weaning on and off strong drugs at speed is not always an option. When a review board sat and took into account all of this recent history, indicators of relapse, the potential risk to staff and co-residents, a decision was made at some haste that Thomas ought to move to a more specialized residence. This was in a remote location well outside of town. When I dream about Thomas, he does not ask two-word questions. He doesn't even ask for the apology that I want to offer. We just speak as two men. Sometimes I waken in tears. We both made mistakes in the same period, each acted in ways we later regretted. The consequences for him, losing much of the independence and opportunities he'd craved, including a job at a local hotel. For me, a few sleepless nights. The following year, I did a dissertation project on perceptions of the role of a key worker, a project which propelled me into the world of research and eventually teaching at Queen's. I've made a habit of reminding students they can learn in the library, the lecture hall, and the canteen, but also the old-fashioned way, experience and making mistakes. Thomas and I haven't spoken in years, but we'll always have Manchester. Man United 4, Aston Villa nil. 
And not just that, but the whole day, the morning sail and rail with the diehards, boarding a packed tram and learning the Ronnie Alaldo chant from the Red Army, the roars, the big stadium lights, the glee, the hugs, and the day after, the stadium tour with the kindly veteran steward. When we arrived at the tunnel, he flicked a switch and through a set of speakers, you heard a synthesis of what the players hear taking to the pitch, their stage. And in the dressing room, the first team jerseys were laid out on hangers and four of us got into a picture with the famous number seven. As we followed the steward back onto the corridor, I felt a pick at my elbow. Thomas, where's the bathroom, John? I asked the steward. He left the rest of the tourists and led the two of us back through the dressing room and pulled back a robe and a no-entry sign. He showed us into the player's bathroom and to a line of gleaming white urinals. <laughs> now, sir, will that do the job all right? You can tell everyone you peed in the same pot as Ronaldo. <laughs> Speaking of whom, you might be wondering whatever happened to that guy. Well, he just finished a second stint at Man United with some commentators saying his superpowers are waning as his age starts to show, to which I usually find myself muttering something along the lines of, tell me about it. Uh, thanks so much, John. What a wonderful story. I do hope you won't leave it so long before you're back at the 10 by 9 microphone again. And if you think you can follow in John's storytelling footsteps, then get in touch through our website, 10by9.com, we are always, always looking for storytellers, and you'll see all our 2023 events up there as well. Of course, you can always contact us through our social media channels, that's the usuals, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Okay, on to our second story, and this time we're off to Limavati and our lovely friends at the Roe Valley Arts Centre. It was November 10th, and the theme was Secrets and Lies, one of my favourites. Now, this story has some sexual references and does mention abuse, so it might not be for everyone. Anyway, here's Willa Murphy. Many a Catholic has a clerical abuse story, but how many have a favorite clerical abuse story? I do. For me, it's the one about how three of the men in my life were all groomed and variously abused by the same priest, a narrative that spans across two continents, three dinner parties, four decades, and at least five bottles of fine wine. It's always been hard to put this bizarre coincidence down to simple statistical probability, even though I've lived in various hotbeds of Catholicism. More to the point, how is it that I seem to share the same taste in men with a middle-aged Holy Cross priest? I first heard about Father B, when I arrived to do a master's in theology at Notre Dame, that Catholic Disneyland in northern Indiana, founded by French missionary priests in the mid-19th century. It seemed to me they pinpointed a place on the map where future students would suffer extremes of cold and heat the most numbers of days a year, thus lessening their days in purgatory. Father B was a figure of terror amongst the students, a professor of ethics, Yes, really. He was known for publicly berating students who walked on the campus grass and for his three strikes policy in grading papers. After the third error in spelling, grammar, or punctuation, he stopped reading and emblazoned the paper with an enormous F in gleaming red ink, inscribed 
presumably with such anger that ghostly Fs appeared to be dug into every page below. Such papers became living relics on the campus, sometimes passed around a dorm room or library study hall in the small hours. Students who doubted the truth of the three strikes could look upon the throbbing red letter, trace their fingers over the wounded manuscript, and believe. Father B had an air of Anglophilia about him, having studied at Cambridge back in the 60s. It must have been in those medieval quads with their arbitrary rules that he learned to keep off the grass. Of all the Cambridge values one could bring to bear on the American Midwest, this lawn fetish seemed a strange one to import. But as with so many angry, capricious gods, Father B enjoyed not a small following, mostly among students who had impeccable spelling and who equated good pedagogy with persecution. He said mass in one of the dorms every Sunday evening, and these students flocked to his altar. They liked the way he gave lectures rather than homilies, the way he spoke in a mid-Atlantic accent, and the way he didn't go in for those newfangled practices like giving out communion in the hand. Father B was an unswerving, old-school, on-the-tongue man. When he wasn't shouting at people for standing on grass or failing people for confusing who and whom, Father B was busy writing books telling people what they were doing wrong, books on marriage, on abortion, on universities losing their Christian values. One of these books, I remember, boasted the subtitle, Essays Ethical, the archaic syntax giving readers the whiff of traditional values to be found inside, and maybe to remind us of his Oxbridge pedigree. My boyfriend at the time was one of his flock and carried a copy of this book in his backpack. He took Father B's classes, attended his masses, pored over his books. Mike took me to one of these dorm masses, which in Notre Dame counts as a date in this strange Catholic world. He was excited for me to meet the man himself after mass, but Father B seemed more interested in chatting with Mike, not his real name. I would go on to meet Father B at various theology department gatherings, but each time he never remembered my name or ever meeting me before. I told Mike I found his hero rather unimpressive. On top of his misogyny, I couldn't help thinking that anyone who called his book Essays Ethical must, at bottom, be an asshole. <laughs> Mike was flirting with Opus Dei around this time, and for those lucky enough not to know what Opus Dei is, uh, it's one of those right-wing Catholic groups who wear barbed wire underwear, love Latin mass, and hate women. I had, a feminist, I had a feminist messiah complex in those days and had some idea that I could perhaps save Mike from Father B and from Opus Dei with some well-executed blowjobs. My fallen-away Baptist housemate was on hand for expert tutorials and assured me that no amount of barbed wire could keep a man away from this garden of delight. <laughs> and, Lisa pointed out, it has a Latin name. That should impress him. <laughs> it was around this time that Mike announced he'd been invited to a dinner party at Father B's residence, a dormitory across St. Joseph's Lake in the farthest flung, thickly wooded part of the campus. A select group of theology students had been invited, he said. Father B was cooking something French. They were going to discuss ethics, and in particular, the abortion issue. 
That Sunday night in February, Lisa and I continued our Socratic dialogue on the platonic blowjob while we ate barbecued ribs from a bucket and spilled bottles of Mickey's wide mouth beers. Lisa expatiated on pressure and timing. The ribs and bottles became a useful prop. We thought about Mike and his fancy dinner, wondering what course they were on now and what they were deciding, all these young men and a celibate priest, about women's bodies. That's when we heard banging on the door. It was Mike, fluttering and pale, wearing a mask of frozen tears and snot. It is not advisable to cry anywhere, anywhere near Lake Michigan in February, when temperatures regularly drop to minus 20. This was one of those nights, and Mike had just trudged through the woods, sobbing. After he thought out, he told us what happened. The dinner party was exclusive indeed. He was the only guest. There was wine before dinner and during, and after came the brandy. The portions of food were small, or French, rather. By 2 a.m., Father B suggested that it was too cold for a very drunk boy to be marching across the campus, and that he had a spare room and a futon available, all made up, so just go and lie down. I'll check on you shortly. You seem so tense, Michael. Go lie down. And so he did. And sometime after, there was Father B standing over him, naked but for a crucifix around his neck, and offering to give Mike a back rub. Father B climbed onto Mike like Christ climbing the cross. There was a struggle. He thinks he punched Father B and ran out. My next boyfriend was an ex-seminarian with a white messiah complex. He worked with Cambodian refugees. He saved black people at the local homeless shelter. He owned a big house and let rooms to various international students. It was that point in our relationship when partners begin sharing tales of past trauma. He confided in me that his spiritual director, while he was a seminarian, one Father B, had invited him to a dinner party at his rooms. Again, this turned out to be a party of two, with lots of wine and very little food. The topic was intimacy, and Father B told this priest in training that he thought he had intimacy issues and needed practice getting close to someone. After many glasses of wine, he suggested the spare room and the futon, and once again, the naked priest and his dangling crucifix appeared. <laughs> Years later, I was telling this story to another man in my life, an older man, an Oxbridge Don who'd studied at Cambridge back in the 60s. Wait, he said, there was a young priest at Cambridge when I was a student, a bit older than me, doing a DPhil. He invited me to a dinner party at his house, and when I arrived, there were no other guests. I thought it was strange. He had a housekeeper, a French woman, who served the meal, but who was mostly invisible. I remember a lot of red wine. I remember he was rather pleased with himself and didn't want me to leave. There was no futon or back rub that time. These were early days in Father B's grooming habits. Years later, when his exploits unethical became public, when waves of students came forward with similar stories, um, Father B, like so many abusive priests, was moved far away. He spent his final years in his own personal purgatory at an all-women's college in northern Canada. <laughs> Wow, I have to say, the, the dangling crucifix. <laughs> I, I'm certainly not to make light of the, the topic, but my goodness, thank you so much, Willa, amazing.
Amazing indeed. What a story. Remember, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be. But if you want to help with some of our costs, you can make a donation via Patreon or PayPal, if you like. Or maybe give the podcast a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. That is, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, for example. We'd be very grateful. But it's more important that you sit back, relax and enjoy. Okay, on to our third and final story this week. And we're returning to the black box and small world. Here's the much-loved Jim Livingston. A world with 8 billion people scattered across 7 continents and 195 countries. And yet all of us occasionally experience surprise at how small this world can feel. Especially meeting people you know or used to know when you least expect it. Like the time I was working in the United States and feeling very homesick. In a Cleveland, Ohio bar one night... Surrounded by strangers, I suddenly heard the distinctive melodic strain of a Belfast accent among all the American drawls. <laughs> Thank you, big lad, hey! <laughs> Surrounded by strangers, I, I searched the bar and, and there he was, Kevin, on the other side of the bar, my old mate from Queens. We were both so pleased to see each other at a time, as it happens, when both of us were missing home. It really is a small world filled with lots of little pleasures. But this small world can also reassure us about the human condition. I was playing with a band in a large Irish nightclub. Such things do exist. In London in the late 1970s. Yes, I am that old. It was called the Bush at Shepherd's Bush. The star of the show was, in fact, my mother. I was her musical director and accompanist. She was known as Bridie Gallagher, the girl from Donegal. She was once described by the BBC as Ireland's first pop star. She was appearing nightly in the club for a week, and it was packed every night. During this trip, these trips, I would often see people who I had met before on previous tours. It was always nice to see them again, swap news and gossip. It was part of the life of touring and performing. Nothing exceptional, really. One night, however, was very different. On stage that night, I was playing guitar as usual, leading the band. In front of the stage was a small dance floor where the audience jived and jiggled away with frantic energy, while others sat at tables drinking and singing along with Bridie. For some reason, I noticed a couple standing at the edge of the dance floor near the bar. She was stunningly beautiful, with long blonde hair, shimmering dress and a gorgeous smile. He was smaller in stature, with a long, bright ginger beard, with an amazing ginger afro hairstyle, and wearing leather jacket and leather trousers. They certainly didn't look local. They were both staring at me and I felt a little uneasy. I definitely didn't recognise them. Eventually the show ended and I was in the dressing room with the rest of the band. There was a knock on the door. It was the manager. Jim, there's a couple at the stage door from Australia who say they know you and really like to see you. I don't know anybody in Australia, George, but I'll come anyway and speak with them. 
When I went down the corridor, there waiting was the gorgeous blonde lady and the guy with the amazing red Afro hairdo I'd seen in the audience. Hi, Jim. It's so good to see you again. As soon as I heard his voice, I knew him instantly. I gasped. Jesus, Tony. Tony, it's you. I flung my arms around him and we hugged each other tightly. It was Tony Rafferty, a pal from school who I hadn't seen for ten years. And he introduced his beautiful companion, Katie. We were in the same class at grammar school until he left after fifth year. For those five years, we'd been the closest of buddies, weirdly sharing a fascination for model railways rather than girls. We each had a Hornby railway set in our attics at home. But Tony was special. He could fix absolutely anything, a malfunctioning engine or carriage or faulty wheels or the electric control box used to operate the trains. Sadly, however, Tony suffered horrendous treatment at school. Sometimes he missed his homework or got questions wrong in class or was chatting when he shouldn't have. Yes, he wasn't the perfect student. But for this, he was repeatedly beaten with a strap or a cane or on occasions actually punched by some teachers with their fists. And of course, Tony never, ever responded. It was the dreadful culture of schooling in the 1960s, certainly in boys' schools. Corporal punishment was the norm. I called brutality. And tragically, some teachers seemed to enjoy it too much. When I witnessed those beatings as a 13 and 14-year-old, it made me cry and very frightened. I know I wasn't the only one. Tony was admittedly not very academically inclined, as they say, nor did he do well in exams. So he was repeatedly told by those same teachers that he would never be a success or come to any good in life. But Tony was a gentle and kind boy who was never involved in fights or bullying, although he was bullied by other boys. I liked him immensely. I think I loved him. Now, he was not a saint. One afternoon, he had mitched off school after lunch and gone down to Anderson Macaulay's department store, where, with his duffel coat neatly draped over his arm, he succeeded in pinching a new Hornby railway carriage <laughs> that he wanted but couldn't afford from the toy department. Clear signs of a future entrepreneur, I thought. After fifth year and five years of continuous beatings, he did not return to school and simply disappeared from my life. Now, incredibly, he was here right in front of me. It was a very, very emotional reunion. There was a bar for the performers backstage, so I took Tony and Katie there and ordered drinks. We chatted for ages, catching up on our lives. I learned that he had emigrated with his mum and dad to Australia and got a job as an apprentice mechanic in a Melbourne garage. He proved to be a mechanical wizard, especially with motorbikes, and started competing in motocross scrambling competitions. Within five years, he became one of the top 
Australian motocross riders, winning Australian and international championships several times. He also met the love of his life, Katie, the blonde angel with him now. And then with great pride he announced, we just got married two weeks ago. They were now on their honeymoon. No ordinary honeymoon, oh by God no. It was a round-the-world trip lasting four weeks. They'd already been to Singapore, Rome and Paris. They'd be going on from London next to New York, San Francisco, Honolulu and then back to Melbourne. So he was obviously doing quite well financially, I thought. What brought you here tonight, Tony? It's incredible that of all places in London you should come here. Well, we're staying at the Hilton and Park Lane and we were in a taxi back coming back from Windsor Castle after doing some sightseeing, when I saw the poster outside the club advertising your mother. I told Cathy, I knew her. I know him, her son, and often had tea in their house. Katie said, well, let's go and see her then. And so here we are. Of course, the last thing I expected was to find you here too. That's the best bit, Tony said. Katie giggled with delight. It's so lovely to see you guys together after all these years. We talked and talked about old times, but mostly their life in Australia. Tony certainly seemed to have found happiness and success, and yet was still the gentle and kind guy I knew in school days. In that sense, he had changed very little. I asked him, will you be visiting Belfast? Maybe we can get together again. But he shook his head very slowly. Too many painful memories, Jim. Sorry, I can't face going back. I have no family there anymore, and frankly, I don't need those memories. I'd be afraid who I might meet. You know what I mean. He mumbled sadly, looking at the floor. Katie put her arms around him and kissed his cheek. He smiled at her. I understood immediately. Before he and Kitty left, we hugged again and promised to keep in touch and then they were gone. I was so grateful at that moment to this small world to see him once again and spend precious minutes with my old school pal, Tony. A pal who had suffered far, far too much at school, but I'm proud to say had magnificently proven those gutless teachers so wrong as he set off now on his honeymoon trip around this small world with his beautiful bride, a successful, happy man, a real bloody champion. Ah, what a glorious story, Jim. How sad and yet so affirming at the same time. Thank you so much. And that is it for this, the first podcast of 2023, with hopefully many more to come. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Also, of course, email, and that is story at 10by9.com. And check out the website. Maybe think about giving the podcast a review or a rating at a podcast app, if you can, and tell as many people as you can about 10 by 9 and the 10 by 9 podcast. Thanks to all the people who make 10 by 9 happen, Margaret, Leanne and Chris, the gorgeous people of the Black Box and Roe Valley, our wonderful audiences and all our storytellers, but especially John Moriarty, 
Willa Murphy, and Jim Livingston. I'm Paul Dorn, and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye.